0: welcome to another episode of bench talk i'm your host tom gerrard uh this week i'm catching up with melbourne-based artist daniel o'toole how you going daniel good mate how are you yeah good thanks so (laughs) great to finally sit down with you i've been uh been watching your creative journey over many years so it's uh it's good to finally sit down and uh and find out a lot more about it
1: yeah awesome looking forward to it
0: oh thanks so let's uh start from the beginning i guess um like where are you from and how did you get into art um from sydney um
1: so i grew up in the sort of outer suburbs of sydney in the south in a place called Um and i got into art pretty young because i i don't know i just always enjoyed drawing and my parents were very creative and kind of encouraging of that, so I think that really helped. My mum's an artist as well; she uh, paints portraits and was always really good at drawing, and does a lot of watercolor work um, and acrylics. And dad was good at drawing and played music, and he didn't like drawing, but he was good at it if he wanted to do it. But he didn't; he didn't really have an interest in it. He just sort of—he's more of a technically minded guy. Um, but still very creative and focuses more on music he's always played guitar and bass and things like that so
0: yeah so you grew up in a pretty creative household
1: yeah very yeah I was I feel very lucky with that having that sort of uh, environment around me it was like super normalized mm. to just sort of be creative and play and yeah make art and music that was always sort of part of the family culture
0: yeah, you're very very fortunate. Mine was nothing like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I hear that from a lot of artists as yeah. well. I feel like that must be tough not having yeah. it around you. Yeah, yeah.
0: I was the, I was the opposite because my introduction to art in the household was through graffiti, so it was seen as a negative.
1: Yeah. I can imagine. So when I, when
0: I tried went to pursue an art career, it was like you're not still doing that, are you? Yeah,
1: yep. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's all right now.
1: <laughs> I had some negative responses to to my graffiti interest as well, but um, you know, initially when I got interested in it and I bought some magazines you know my mom was the one who encouraged it and and actually organized like spray painting lessons for me with like the son of a friend of hers who was older and was into painting trains and stuff so I mean that's pretty progressive I guess
0: that's really progressive (laughs) yeah yeah like I I remember going to my cousin's house and he uh his mom had bought him some spray paint like he had a whole box of like Montana's and stuff like that and she's like oh go go practice and stuff and I'm like what it was yeah. just a completely different uh different, different dynamic way of... yeah, yeah yeah that's pretty uh that's really cool that's really cool Yeah. um so yeah i first came across your artwork uh when you were doing uh street art and stuff like how, how did you uh did it start with the lessons for you and you just sort of uh grew from yeah around? oh look
1: i was super young when that happened i think i was about 13 or 14 when i started getting interested and those lessons and i was spray painting bits of plywood in the garage and trying to do sort of pieces and tags and portraits and whatever and yeah it was years later that i actually met someone else who was interested in graffiti who could sort of take me out and show me like spots to do it that were okay where you wouldn't get in trouble and it was kind of chill um so i painted in what was the first spot it was like with scale from drs crew and army who was in that same crew and that was in gore hill which is kind of a famous spot at the back of a highway in sydney so yeah i mean that's kind of that's where it all started and i was yeah just did that for years and but i was always the guy who did like the sort of characters you know i think because i could do that people didn't and my pieces weren't anything to write home about so everyone just sort of relegated me to the character guy uh, on the productions you know which was I didn't mind I enjoyed doing that
0: yeah um, every crew yeah. needs one yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess so yeah
0: yeah um I bet I guess you end up uh with being a character guy you end up being a background guy a bit as well you end up having to fill in everyone's backgrounds for him and take up the, yeah. the bulk of the wall
1: it's a bit of that yeah yeah um but yeah I enjoyed I enjoyed the medium and just sort of the challenge of the scale, I think. So I, and I used to get these tiny photos of people's faces out of 3D World, which was this sort of street press thing about rave parties and everything, music culture. And there'd be all these faces of people at the parties. And I felt like they were fair game to sort of blow up and paint on a wall. Um, so that was pretty funny, just sort of trying to do that and getting getting the proportions down. And yeah, that's so sort of, that was sort of my introduction. I think initially I was just trying to learn how to paint accurately or realistically for a long time. And my mom really valued that kind of work as well. And I was trained on sort of realistic portraiture from 13, from my mom and from friends of hers that were artists as well. So I had like drawing lessons and that was sort of just part of part of my upbringing,
0: Mm. yeah. So, being that was the case, like, did in your mind, do you think like to be a, a talented artist, you needed know, to be really good at like, say, doing portraits and, and getting likeness and like at painting point, in a realistic manner?
1: At one point, I used to think that way for sure. That was, that was very, that was almost indoctrinated, I think, into my way of thinking. Um, my mum was more traditional and maybe didn't have as much understanding for like really out there contemporary work. Um, So I adopted that mindset early on and then eventually I reshaped it in my own, you know, making through experience going to galleries and started to erode that thinking and turned out, yeah, my real interest was in distortion and abstraction and changing the way people perceive things, which like started with faces and doing abstract portraiture, like super inspired by Francis Bacon and Brett Whiteley and things like that earlier on.
0: Mm. Yeah, because with with your art, like, you know, when I like I first knew you for doing characters and all that sort of stuff, but it's and you know, you you went under a different name and you had yeah. your your own style and all that. But like what you're doing now is you seem to have like just chopped that off and completely like yeah. just, yes. just gone in it, just gone, you know what, I'm leaving that in the past and I'm going in a different direction, which is quite rare for a lot of um street artists who transition into gallery work and they yeah um, yeah i see that you know, you know like know they, I mean. they they sort of hold on to part of their name or they ho- like you know that that transition's very awkward for a lot of people whereas <laughs> to see you, to see you do, yeah to see you do it like just this clean break like how how was that for you and what what what, what made uh, you come to that decision and, and everything I
1: think the, the funny thing about that is it seems like this sort of overnight decision that sort of just snapped from from day to night or something but it wasn't such a clean break as you put it it took a long time and it was super awkward it's just that Hmm. people didn't see that it once once the new sort of work that i was doing really started to get people's attention it was like it just appeared out of nowhere but people just hadn't bothered to notice it for years popping up in my work and I, i found that was actually a problem like with the ears monica captain earwax instagram page whenever i would do something really experimental I don't think people even realized it was me because if they saw it on their feed, they would just sort of scroll past it or they wouldn't identify it as my work. So it sort of was invisible. So then all of a sudden when I created like a new page and started putting it all in one place, it seemed like it just popped out of nowhere, but I was developing that work for quite a while. Like I started this sort of change, I guess, in about 2015, which is, you know, it's going back a bit, Mm. but, Um, the idea came out of portraiture still because I was doing all this quite experimental photography as a resource for painting because I was doing these portraits and even though they were they were very sort of anonymous and ambiguous portraits that were more about abstraction I was really just using the face as a framework for exploring color and form and things like that and it it gave the audience like an anchor to sort of make sense of what I was doing and relate to it and made it commercially viable i think if i try and tried to go straight into abstraction early on in my 20s with no with nothing to hang it off it just wouldn't have connected with anyone so the portrait was really convenient sort of vehicle to get me there but then i found that i wanted some sort of like reality to underpin the, the portraits and like give it give it a reference point that felt like it sort of substantiated it even if you didn't see the link clearly, it, you, you felt it. So I started to take photos of all my friends. But just taking straight up photography was like quite boring. And I didn't I didn't feel inspired to use those as references. So I started trying to make photos that felt more abstract, more like my painting, so that they would inspire abstract ideas. And the way that I did that was like painting on pieces of glass that I had hanging around the studio and then taking iPhone photos through them initially. And then I would do, you know, uh, Polaroids and film stuff in the same sort of way. And it was a lot of just like looking at the semi-transparent screen as a way of um, distorting portraits. That was the initial idea. And then I found that frosted material uh, in the rubbish outside in the bin behind my studio because I worked at a commercial printers. That's where my studio was at Higher Ground Studio in Sydney, and found this sort of You know printing debris and started taking photos through that and loved the result so that ended up a big series i shot hundreds of polaroids and video works and things like that using this frosted material but it was all figurative and then the first show was intended to be uh, a portrait show with the frosted acrylic that i was using to make the reference photographs in the framing method you know to conceal the paintings it seems like a cool idea But then when I tried it, I didn't like the outcome. It felt like cheesy for lack of a better word. And I I felt that really disappointed because I would put a lot of energy into this. It had been building for years. And then I sort of had this light bulb moment. I thought this is going to be it. And then I, I made my first few portraits like that and framed them that way. And they just didn't quite hit the mark. And I sort of had to sit with that disappointment for a bit and at the same time i was making these videos that i didn't really see as a big part of my practice at the time they were like a fun outlet on the side where i was just shooting stuff with my phone and i had hundreds of them i've been doing it for years but it was little kind of sketches i'd do at the cafe like filming usually light refraction or shadows moving or something kind of kinetic like that that was textural i just sort of collected them for fun i guess and as like maybe an asset that I might use in a video clip for a band or something like that, but I had these works there. So I started looking to that and thinking, well, maybe I'll do something abstract if the portrait's not working. So I had a crack at doing, doing some, some abstract, um, color field type works to just take out this really distracting element of the portrait, which seemed like it was overpowering, whatever this work was going to be about. And then once I did that, that's what felt really good that clicked and the rest of that show was abstract so i had two portraits or three portraits i think in that show i might have even been four there was a couple of portraits and then there was about 10 abstract works so it was a pretty strange show because you could see the break in thinking in the one exhibition and I, i was excited about it and i thought this was a big This was gonna be my breakthrough moment and everyone was gonna understand how important this was as a creative sort of shift. And it didn't really go that well. I did that show in the Blue Mountains which wasn't probably the best place to show it because it was far from my support and community but it was a beautiful space and gallery and I was happy to to get the opportunity to show such different work. We didn't really sell many, didn't cover my costs And I sent it to lots of galleries and no one was interested. So it sort of failed a little bit in my eyes at the time. And I tried to enter it into prizes. I did re-show it a few times, that same body of work. But the second time I showed it, I edited out all the portraits and I only showed the abstracts, which was another sort of important step in that transition. I guess I showed it at a gallery called Stacks Projects, which was a sort of more experimental, academic aligned space that had a lot to do with national art school uh people from i think masters students had sort of set it up and there was quite a um a lot of artists from nas were showing there that show was pretty poorly attended i had to invigilate the space myself which was boring because no one was coming in (laughs) and i think i just felt like let down by the whole thing at the end of the day i had this sort of expectation and it didn't kind of quite happen as quickly as I wanted it to. And I I sort of left that work for quite a while. And I went back to portraiture and I did another Ears show after that. I I sort of gave up on it for a while. And then I went and did a figurative show at Juddy Roller and thought, well, I'm just going to have to keep making a living doing the thing that makes me a living. You know, this didn't, this didn't work. And um, it was a few years of just doing more murals and street art stuff before someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, what are you doing? Like, that work was really important and you've given up on it so easily. Like, why did you not push it? And that artist was Dan Kyle. He was the one who, um, who who I knew through a trade. He wanted some of those abstract works and and he ended up getting two of them off me. I had so many of them that hadn't sold. I said, sure, take two, you know, they're not selling. And, and he gave me some of his paintings um, But he was the one who sort of said, "Um, this works really great. I don't know why you're not pushing it. And when I explained, you know, how, what my reasons and it didn't work. And I've, you know, been a bit disheartened by the whole thing. He just, he sort of said, the problem is people can't see it because it's so different from the work that you're known for. You can't have them in the same place online. You need a new, you need to rebrand yourself as as a different artist with this work, because it is so different. So I had been told that before, actually, from gallery directors and wasn't ready to take it on yet. But when he said it, for some reason, the timing was right. And I did it. And I just was moving to Melbourne around that time. And it was it felt like maybe just a good, good stage of life to sort of um, re reinvent myself, have a bit of a creative um, rebirth of sorts. And Melbourne felt good to do that because there was like a sense of anonymity here. I do have a lot of support and friends here, but it's different to Sydney. Everyone knew me in Sydney as Ears. People in the street who I didn't even know would, would say hello to me. Like, oh, Ears, how are you going? And I I don't know how I know them or if I do. And it was this, there was a kind of like fame for Ears that felt limiting in a sort of, um, artistic identity ego sense where I didn't I didn't feel like that was expansive for me creatively to kind of stay to stay there performing for that audience the, the the tricks they wanted to to see over and over so Melbourne was a great reset and the timing was perfect with that with that kind of conversation I had with Dan Kyle it was quite pivotal um, so I did it I started started sort of focusing a little bit away from the ears work, um, and building this new digital scrapbook of that practice. And it wasn't until I started putting it all together in one Instagram page that I felt like I had something substantial there and it, it helped me see and understand what my practice was really becoming about. So yeah, it's, it's a big, it was a big journey. It didn't definitely didn't just happen overnight. And even after that decision to start sort of rebranding myself as myself, <laughs> as my real name and with my, I guess what I would say my real work or my more true, authentic artistic voice, as I discovered it, it didn't take off straight away. That was in 2019. I didn't really start selling my first paintings of that style until during the pandemic, from lockdown. And yeah, mural, uh, mural work and street art was my my lifeboat to sort of navigate those new waters because when I was struggling and trying to figure out this new style, I could I could always kind of lean on my on my contacts to get some mural work and kind of push that again and and that's how i um that's how i funded the transition street art definitely subsidized that kind of shift
0: hmm.
1: into into a very different practice and i had to rebuild from the beginning because the people that liked his work didn't like the new work and the people that liked the new work didn't like the old work so they were completely different audiences
0: yeah that's such an interesting story it's like i've I've, no, I've watched so many artists go through the same transition Mm. and it's it's never easy it's never easy sleepless nights what am i doing you know and i've always found that the one the one question to ask yourself in those situations is who who do in five years time who do i want to be known as and what sort of art do i want to be doing Mm. and the answer to that's usually the the decision to make then and there because you're going to end up there anyway you know yeah but gee it's torturous i went through it myself Mm
1: -hmm. and um
0: yeah but it was it's funny i've you know I talk about on the podcast a lot that, um, you know, I love to study art, like just on YouTube and that. And I've been finding these videos lately where you can watch um, an artist's career in images, like in huh. a timeline. Yeah, right. And so so say you choose an artist and you Google them and it opens up just hundreds of different images in all random order. You can, you can get an idea of what the, the artist does. Mm. But it's only through watching these timeline videos where it starts at the the first paintings that are known of them. And then it goes through year mm. by year till their death, if they're if they're dead. Um, and then you can really see the progression and see the story and see how yeah. everything's morphing. It's like, oh, I can I can actually see the the subtle changes through painting to painting as the years go on and how they mm. end up in this distant place, you know. But yeah. it um it is difficult to just sort of pop up and go, ta-da, here's my new work and um without anyone actually really understanding the uh yeah. the the morphing that's happened in between you know yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah but um but i just I, you know with when i was introduced to your current work i just saw it like you'd um grown up heaps you know what i mean there is something about um street art like that is a lot of artists that i know and who have been on this podcast sort of start there. If you know Mm. what I mean, you start like, you know, a lot of uh, people I've spoken to, you know, you start with letters, and then you start moving into different forms, painting, but still on the streets, and then eventually move into a gallery career, but Mm. a lot of there's a lot of um, transition that happens there. And, uh, and I feel that your your current work is uh, really mature, you know, because it's quite bold to go from painting figurative work, even characters as well, and then go and then go fully abstract as well yeah you know. yeah but even yeah, I the, think pre- it the presentation a and everything like yeah yeah
1: well the first show was quite different like the presentation side of it was these sort of hardwood australian timber frames that the guy who ran the gallery in the blue mountains had the wood under his house so he donated it to help me make the frames and then he had a friend who could help me do it and so we we kind of got these frames made For the frosted acrylic out of Australian hardwood which seemed like a good idea at the time but then during that show I had this kind of realization where people would come up to me and say oh I love those frames and really they just loved the wood they were just enjoying this beautiful sort of timber and then it felt like the last thing they noticed was the painting the colour field was sort of in competition with the with the sort of romantic Australiana looking frame so it wasn't the, the intention of the work wasn't really being achieved and I realised I need to try and engineer this into a type of frame where the, the work is louder than the frame and the frame just disappears into the gallery. So that's why they ended up thinner and white and with mirrors on the inside. It's all about trying to hide the frame and sort of allow it to sink back into the background, into the white cube so that the colour seems to hang in space and and not be in competition or or not not have the frame be a sort of decorative element because usually like the frame is a a bit of a decorative element to support the work and it goes on at the end and in my work i've often thought of like the painting as the support for the frame so it sort of flips that relationship a little bit where the frame has sort of become the work like that design and that thinking and that subtlety of how light plays and is refracted by the material. The materiality of the frame is, is sort of what uh, evokes the function and the experiential element in the work. And then the color is there to sort of like um, act as a vehicle to get you through that experience and and articulate it. But it it can kind of be anything that expresses the frame. And that's why I'm able to play with all these other sort of, you know, versions of it where some of them are more sculptural and using different materials and geometric ideas and gives me a lot of freedom but designing the frame was like a huge huge task and I think it's why it fell flat you know originally in that show the reason it didn't take off is I hadn't nailed that yet and that was going to be a longer journey to sort of articulate what the work was really about and get it to a point where it didn't need any explanation people connected with it and the the sort of feeling of the way light plays was at the forefront of the work rather than, you know, being overpowered by a beautiful timber. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: was going to ask you about that. Like the the presentation of your works, you you know, you seem to put a lot of consideration into that and you use a lot of materials that aren't traditionally used as well. Like, do you, have you ever had a background in like industrial design or a passion for that or it's solely just trying to solve the, the, situ- the gallery situation to display your work in its best light.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely don't have any industrial design experience, although I guess now maybe a little bit of design experience. But um, metal work is strangely close to home because my dad has a passion for metal work. He has um, he's always tinkered with his cars and making things out of metal and, and wood, but he's got a metal lathe at home and a mill and like quite an impressive garage full of um. You know big industrial tools and maybe that's rubbed off a little bit and i've enjoyed chatting to dad about some of the problems and solving solving things and he's got a great problem solving mind and it's probably been part of it but but apart from that um no i don't have any any formal experience with it
0: yeah well it looks great like like you do. (laughs) thanks well
1: that's good i mean i'm working with very skilled people though as well you know you rely Mm. on collaborators and and fabricators that are um absolute technicians at what they do so
0: Mm.
1: i have to pay a lot of respect to richie brownley who runs red steel in melbourne because he's been just an absolute force to work with he's got such great energy and enthusiasm for the projects. And a lot of the metal workers I met and talked to, they just weren't very interested. They had this kind of off the cuff, rough and ready attitude. Oh, yeah, mate, we can do that. Whatever, give us a, you know, we'll do the quote, whatever, get it out. And then the work they would do was really bad. They just didn't care. You know, they weren't they didn't have any sensitivity for the type of fine work I was after. And then I realized that was essentially a boilermakers skill set. What I was looking for it was quite rare and so i couldn't afford a boilermaker they're they're um hugely expensive if you look into that <laughs> so i found i found this guy richie and he's an artist as well he plays music and he was making his own snare drums out of steel and he was just the perfect perfect collaborator because he got it and he cared about it and he wanted to be doing fun creative projects rather than just making door frames mm. so yeah i owe a lot to my collaborators with that with the framing design and development
0: yeah Yeah. I completely agree I um I've worked with lots of people throughout my career as well and it's um really helped bring the uh every exhibition together or or body of work or whatever Mm. like just uh, having professionals uh, you know who have the skills that are outside your skill set but um help you achieve the vision that you you want is really important like as I say there's no no one's self-made it 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 takes a village it doesn't matter who you are you know yeah it's like they've even said, you know, I was listening to something the other day and they're talking about James Brown and how you know he grew up homeless on the streets as a child and they talk about how he's self-made. But at the same time he's he's not self-made because he wouldn't have been anything without his band and you know mm. record labels and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, um absolutely. yeah, no no one's truly self-made, you know. Definitely like we not. even we even need the art supply shops and everything, you know. <laughs> the galleries <laughs> also this transportation term
1: from- I think Brian Eno coined it called "senius" instead of genius, which is the sort of social intelligence that supports someone to to be positioned in the sort of status of genius. It's never because of their own, you know, individual talent separate to their community. It is the collective intelligence. And they're just a sort of totem for it, for that group, that, that hive mind that thinks around them. I think that's a really nice term. I don't think it gets used, but I remember hearing that you know Brian Eno talk about it I think I think he was the creator of, of the term yeah which was interesting.
0: interesting legend I love that yeah um so m- music plays a uh a role in your artwork as well like um yeah you know so you said that your dad played the guitar and there was music in your house growing up Has music always been um a big part of your artwork or has it been something that's separate and throughout your life and now it's just starting to come together
1: um yeah it's always been a big a big part of just my my creative self in general i guess i grew up playing violin um you know classical violin and then i got into celtic music in my 20s to sort of revisit it and keep keep it alive i suppose my mum was a jazz singer for many years and played in bands and ended up buying a really amazing piano for the house and then we would have these jazz concerts in the house where all the local you know neighborhood people would kind of gather in the house, she'd fit like a hundred people in the living room. It's a big sort of open plan style place with this grand piano and then put on these jazz concerts with sort of some of the best jazz players in town because she was gigging and knew them and had all these contacts and it was a well-paid gig. She was charging 35 bucks on the door. All the money went to the Musos, 100%, which I think was pretty much unheard of. I don't think there were any gigs like that around where someone was donating you know, a space and marketing, and she would even cater it, and had this fifty thousand dollar Yamaha concert grand piano sitting in the living room, <laughs> so it was pretty insane. So yeah, I feel like pretty lucky. I've had all that around me. I got into hip hop in high school and was rapping and you know making beats, and I was in this uh, crew with some of the DRS guys and another another crew called JG, Just Grooving. Neckle was the guy who made the beats. Uh, that was his tag, you know, and he he was schooled by Surek from Def Wish Cast. So he kind of had the equipment given to him by Paul, which was like an old Atari computer and an Akai S2000 sampler. And that really inspired me. I started, I got the exact same setup. I got the S2000 and my dad's old record collection and started like sampling, you know, cream records and stuff (laughs) to make my first electronic music, I guess, sample-based, you know, hip-hop. Yeah. And it's just always been there. I studied audio engineering. I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to make my own music to a high level. Not necessarily to be an audio engineer as a job to go and work in a big studio, but just to be able to do it for my own interests. And then yeah, I've always kind of collected synths and records and you know, instruments and just had a kind of fascination with sound. The reason that my street art moniker was Ears is to do with that, you know, because at the time I'd been pretty focused on music for years and I'd studied audio and I was building my home studio. And then when I went to art school and I got really into visual art again, it felt like I needed um, I needed a reminder to myself that music's still pretty important. So Ears was the name I chose for that reason. Um, so, yeah, music's always kind of been it's been working in tandem, I suppose, with with visual art, but I, I have found it hard to, to combine them. And sometimes it's felt a little bit like um, maybe people struggle to believe that you can be good at two things, like so different from each other. So, and if you put them together, there tends to be this hierarchy of value where one takes the focus and the other has to be the support. It's, it's not easy to present an audio visual work where they have uh, an equal balance of of um value or focus in the experience for an audience so i guess i like that challenge though that's that's sort of something i've tried to and it also just gives me an excuse to keep the music going if i bring it into my exhibitions you know keep it a part of my life and share it with people even if it's not financially um a viable uh interest it has never has been i've never made any money off music but it's just given me so much joy that i keep it i keep it in my practice it still feels creatively like very relevant to what i'm doing so
0: yeah you gotta follow that don't you yeah i mean you gotta have
1: fun like that's that feels like an important aspect of my practice as well it's keeping it fun
0: yeah it's the best way to create yeah yeah so you mentioned that you are you went to art school as well. Like um yeah. when like what sort of what was your focus at art school? Were you focusing more on your current work or was it just while you're still immersed in street art?
1: Uh oh, you know what happened? I, I went to art school and I was I was getting really into street art and I was I actually was just starting to like do trips to Melbourne and paint on the street and do these paste up missions and all that sort of stuff. And then basically I had this nemesis at the school who hated the street art thing i was doing and there are a few teachers that had a bit of an attitude against the graffiti and street art that they knew i was involved with and i got told by teachers that i should leave and i'm not in the right place this is a school for you know this is a school for fine art not graffiti kind of thing go study graphic design so i left because i just felt that i didn't really want to be in an institution that that had those stuffy mentalities um pushing me around. There was a bit of, some of them were kind of on their own ego trip, I think. And it was a, you know, a bit of a bully mentality sometimes from the teachers and didn't, I just didn't feel supported or like it was going to be a helpful place to stay. And I saw some of my friends that were sort of a bit older that were finishing it. And it seemed like the last thing they wanted to do when they left art school was make art, which didn't seem encouraging either. So anyway, I just sort of left and my parents weren't happy about that they said like you know you should you should get a degree because then you can teach art and it's pretty hard to make a living as an artist so that that might be a good thing which I um, understood that made sense it was logical but yeah i just i guess i was stubborn i didn't want to aim at the plan b so i just sort of went for it and i left art school after one year and that was in 2007 and then in 2008 i was like working at a cafe but by the end of 2008, I was I was already kind of self-employed full time. I'd quit the cafe and I was running a little shopfront street art gallery called O'Reilly Gallery with um, Max Berry and Jamie Nimmo. So I sort of, I was pretty lucky I fell I fell into like a freelance practice quite quickly, like within 12 months of leaving art school. And I think there was quite a bit of luck in that, to be honest. <laughs> the way that all unfolded (laughs) so yeah
0: the stars aligned keep you creative yeah yeah it's so Um, shitty when people put their like their beliefs on your creativity especially when they're in a position of mentorship you know they're they're the ones they're meant to be your guides and they're they're stifling your creativity and telling you that what you're doing is a waste of time and leave it and I don't know yeah it's uh just jars me with me it was was
1: frustrating but maybe it was the best thing that could have happened as well in a way because it it showed me that that school wasn't the right place to be at that Mm. time so yeah i think that i made the right decision like i never really regretted leaving because things did just unfold so beautifully after i left as well so it felt like i was i sort of found my my flow and met a great community of artists that were that were very energetic and playful and street art was a really interesting movement back then I think that was it's so different now the landscape that's a whole nother conversation isn't it but yeah yeah it was it was a good time to to be in the midst of it
0: Mm. it's always easier to join the dots looking backwards eh at the time (laughs) some some things feel real shitty at the time and it's like yeah this is happening to me but um but when you're in hindsight it's like ah. It's all right was the way yeah. it's meant to be yeah 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 exactly yeah um so like where where uh like where else do you look for inspiration because i see that you uh you work with a lot of um you've got so i guess you've got a very diverse range of um working with color um and even the stuff that you do like with uh you know i've seen you work with like film and microscopes and like then you you're you've still working with like the frosted, uh, you know perspex frames over your artwork as well. Like you've got so many different ways of outputting your artwork. Like where where are you uh, looking around for inspiration? Oh, um,
1: I guess other artists and you know listening to music and cinema. I've always loved film. Films like a huge inspiration. I find cinema. In some ways, like the most um, immersive, uh, rewarding sort of experience in terms of that transcendental thing that happens. I like, talk about it a bit. Where I, I love the sort of moment that happens as as you leave a cinema that's been a really great cinematic experience as a rebirth, where you forget what date it is and what time it is, and you kind of come out of the womb again, and you're like, "Wow, what's what's my life? Who am I again? What day, What?" planet early on. That experience is something I haven't really ever had to that same degree from a from an institutional art um, experience. So maybe the closest has been video art in institutions, um, but even then it's not been quite as engrossing. and. I, I guess that comes back to what we were talking about with the the idea that you know a lot of the best work comes from collaborations. I mean, cinema is like the ultimate example of that. There's so many people involved to make this vision a reality and so much money, I guess, as well, behind the the budgets for those projects. But yeah, cinema has been a big one and a lot of science fiction, art house kind of stuff. Um, I love experimental art in general, I guess, trying to look at people that change the way I think or look at the world and i've had some mentors but but not a not a great not many tony woods was a bit of a mentor uh, anthony woods he's passed away now but he was a, he was a pretty important australian artist in my opinion and a bit of an unsung hero um brett whiteley's contemporary they were sort of working together and went to new york on the harkness fellowship back in the days and yeah he had an amazing career that spanned seven decades or something before he passed away. There's a book on his life's work called Anthony Wood's Archive, which is great. And the warehouse where I used to visit him for cups of tea in Fitzroy is still, still sitting there, filled with his paintings gathering dust at the moment. So it's be interesting to see what happens to those works. But when I met him, I was quite inspired because he he thought in a very similar way to me. He it was very... Um, like endlessly inquisitive about the world around him and hyper sensitive and observant and was constantly collecting information and filming things and and recording sounds and making videos and painting and he was interested in fauvism you know which is sort of this broken palette where all the colors are sort of imagined and and altered so he had this sort of yeah like surreal, sublime way of interpreting the world that felt that felt very sort of spiritual. Um, and at the same time, he wasn't, a you know, out there woo woo spiritual person at all. He was very grounded and funny and down to earth, but he, he was connecting to something really big. So I, I was very inspired to meet him because in some ways it felt like meeting an older version of myself. And I haven't had that opportunity before I met Anthony and he was still excited you know he was in his 70s and he was still like waking up keen to to make art so that was encouraging (laughs) to know that that's possible because we don't get a lot we don't get a lot of um connection to that sort of stage of an artist's career i think that's nice to meet someone older that works in a similar sort of area of, of study as yourself um i showed him the the gopro i had when i when i was hanging out with him and then he he was so excited by that technology he'd never heard of it he went out and bought one like the next week with money he'd saved off his pension you know he was pretty broke at this point and then he'd carry that everywhere in his pocket and just film you know any little interesting thing that popped up you know the sort of oil slick on the road in a puddle or whatever it was so we, interest sort of a similar interest in natural phenomena um and that kind of you know the poetry of small small events or something like that that was being documented and this kind of like field recording data interpolation thing and then a poetic output was was just a bizarre overlap to meet another artist like that so artists like him have had a big impression apart from you know books and and film and music uh, and then I guess my, just my contemporary community, you know, art, the artists that I'm surrounded by, I think the ones you share a studio with end up having a big impact on you.
0: Mm, totally. Um, yeah. Are you, are, you at, um, are you still at, you still at Everfresh? <clears throat> I am.
1: Yeah. I love Everfresh. Yeah. That's just been a great, a great sort of, um, you know, creative discourse and community. And uh, um, Jason Parker, who I sort of neighbor, he's my neighboring artist next door. We're often, chatting about each other's work and offering you know advice and it's just good to have fresh eyes around you to sort of you know pop their head in and, and see what you're up to and and give you their first impressions or their kind of critique and um suggestions for solving problems and because we're all sort of exploring our own thing but it but there's like a this kind of interconnected relationship, and I think it's funny when when you share a studio with people for long enough, you can't help but rub off on each other, and there becomes almost this like, yeah, this hive mind that that happens where everyone's kind of interrelated creatively, and I like that. I think that's really healthy. Uh, yeah. I pre- definitely prefer it to to trying to work in isolation. I have done both, but mostly I've I've enjoyed community community-driven spaces, communal studios.
0: Yeah yeah I agree it's um it's always good I am I've got a bit of a mixture here because I'm I'm on a farm but there's other sheds on the farm yeah, so I've got na- I I got, cre- got creative neighbors but I uh, I'm in a space to myself where I can crank the tunes and that's good as well I suppose you yeah. can invite people
1: around and, and yeah have that invited in
0: totally to I've space. got a yeah we have a table tennis tournament here and Ooh, that's cool stuff like that you know I've get everyone over. up for that that sounds oh, fun. Man, everyone's <laughs> welcome <laughs> sounds great
2: We wanted to take a quick break from the episode today to say a big thanks to our sponsor that has made this podcast possible, introducing the Art Career Academy, the online school for the career artist. This Academy supports artists to build the art career that they desire. And this week on Thursday the 26th of October at 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Time, the Art Career Academy are running a free masterclass called The Abundant Artist, teaching the three steps to create a thriving career as an artist. This masterclass will be jam-packed with value and experience from Tom Gerard and myself, Claire Bradshaw, where we've combined our 14 years of experience in working in our creative careers, and we want to support you to thrive in your creative pursuits as well. So if you're a visual artist with a dream of spending more time in your studio, making really good money and doing what you love every day, then come and join us for this free masterclass. Just head to artcareeracademy.com for more info and click on the free masterclass to register. Can't wait to see you there.
0: Are you ready for some uh, rapid fire questions? Sure. All right. So Daniel, uh, name one artist who you think deserves more shine.
1: Neil Tompkins.
0: Yeah. Yeah, love his yeah. work. You yeah. used to share a studio with him, is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm best, I guess. He's an old mate of mine. We used to live together as well, but I just love his work. I've got a bunch of his paintings um, that we've traded over the years and I just think he's he's a great artist. He's a consummate artist. He's been pushing his craft for so long. He's, he's very authentic and, and unique and I think he's a stayer. He's going to be here mm. for the long haul. So, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. his time will come. It's coming. (laughs) Oh, yeah,
0: he's he's working on it. I want to get him on here. Actually, love to find out more about his art. Yeah. Um. uh, What's a medium you'd love to work with? Um.
1: I mean, I guess I'm already working with it, but I'd like to work more with sound as a medium and creating sort of large scale installations that are sound dependent or focused, so that um, people can interact with sound and. Just to sort of demystify music for communities and, and groups of people, so that there can be um, more access to sort of making making music and and on a communal level, that's kind of a, it's a bit of a ambition of mine.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what's one skill you wish you had?
1: Coding. I'd love to be able to code and to use computers on that level where I can you know come up with an idea that requires coding or programming and and know how to do it mm. so there's only so many hours in the day i guess i'm yeah. struggling to do it all
0: <laughs> yeah it could be a job for someone in your village <laughs> it could
1: be i think yeah <laughs> yeah
0: cuz i I've, I've been thinking about it like where you know where art's going and um like as far as displaying art and i feel that um we're moving into a new realm of um you know you know when you go to a gallery and there's the, the film projection rooms mm. I feel that they're they're gonna be like supercharged as we move into the future, just with the um, you know, the all the technology and you know, more coders around and uh, mm. you know, especially with someone like your skill set, I could see you really taking over a, a room with mm. you know, with audio and visual. More immersive stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 We've I just um yeah, I just feel that uh, you know, I don't know, just I feel that that's a direction that um, art's going, Well, big galleries mm. and everything as well. Mm. So, uh, so who are some of your favourite artists?
1: Um, James Terrell has to be first, and and Larry Bell, and Robert Irwin, Fred Eversley, that sort of crew, the light and space community from, from LA in the 60s. Yayu Kusuma, um Peter Doig, I really have always loved. It's not oh. the type of work I make, but... There's something really beautiful about his, his take on landscape painting. Totally. Uh, Anish Kapoor had a big impact for me with the sort of color voids and uh, that perceptual sort of work that was um, had a more like physical uh, response that it created. Um, Warren Ellis, my favorite fiddle player, he's been very inspiring for me. Saul Sol Leiter, the photographer from New York in the 50s. What he did with composition reminded me a lot of like Richard Corn, but it was like this painterly approach to photography that had a big impact. And when I saw his work, it overlapped with things I was exploring with the frosted material. He did a lot of these photos through sort of um, rainy glass windows and bus shelters and things like that, that used a sort of semi-transparent layer to distort his images. Uh, Dane Lovett, an Australian painter that I really love. Um, something really sensitive and elegant and photographic in reference with his paintings sort of monochromatic um yeah flower sort of paintings but beautiful tamara dean really important um and one of my favorite artists love her photography Um, lucky enough to own one of hers neil tompkins john aslanitas
0: and anthony woods right yeah that's a uh it's it's a very um diverse list like yeah do you, like is this just from <laughs> years of just immersing yourself in art or do you actually like um make time to study art read books like research other artists
1: yeah i it's just incidental i i buy i used to buy a lot of art books i actually had to try and stop buying art books because of you know they just take up so much space and um but yeah i've i've sort of been a bit of a collector of things and I've got a, I have got a lot of beautiful hardcover art books and when I'm traveling, I tend to sort of fill my suitcase with art books and things like that. So yeah, I guess just through, through publications generally has been like one of my favorite ways to discover an artist because I think there's, there's sort of an artwork in themselves when you get a good art artist book and they're they're like a really beautiful physical way to, to interact with the work if you can't see it in the museum.
0: So yeah. I suppose that's been one of the main ways. Yeah. So um, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: Um, just trust your intuition and don't worry about the outcomes or the goals as much and just try to focus a bit more on enjoying the journey. I think in the past I was sort of hung up on where I was headed. Sometimes I would have, you know, a kind of moment, a, a sort of success or something. I, I might struggle to even enjoy it for very long because I'm, pushing too hard or something like that so i think yeah just trying to like relax and enjoy the journey and and trust yourself a bit more Mm. not don't don't sort of um don't stress out too much it's like yeah best work happens when you're relaxed and having fun anyway
0: so exactly yeah yeah i was um i was having a conversation with a friend yesterday um and he's got a solo show coming up and You know he's so freaked out about the uh the art market you know like oh is anyone buying paintings at the moment was like he was thinking about everything you know and it's like look look i said you're gonna gonna do the exhibition regardless aren't you and he's like yeah yeah totally and i said have you had shows that have fallen a bit flat in the past and he's like yeah 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 i have i said, well where are all those paintings now and he goes oh well they all sold sooner or later it's like exactly Mm. so don't worry like just make the art and
1: yeah, move forward exactly. because
0: you're gonna yeah. you, like what? What's the other option? Stop, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can't so, let yeah. that happen. Yeah, you know, so maybe gotta slow, slow be... down. <laughs> just that's
1: my yeah. My thought just... is to slow th- slow things down next year a little bit because this year has been has been tough. As yeah. you probably know.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I've I've I'm, I've made a declaration that that that's over now. That oh, slump good. That slump in the art market. Right. Thanks. Done. I'm
1: happy to hear that done. <laughs>
0: Because oh, that bodes like, well yeah. for my next like, show. Yeah. Two, two weeks ago, I had an opening for a really big show for myself. And yeah. i worked a whole year on this show. And I've invested so much time, energy, and money yeah, into it. Yeah, So And great. Thanks, mate. And, um, yeah. and I had people at the opening... Like just coming up to me, going, "Oh, gee, you're brave putting on a show, or this and that." Data just so doom and gloom, and mm. it happened a, a bunch of times. And even, oh, like, <laughs> yeah, even as I'm like shipping the artwork, had yeah. people saying that stuff to me. It's just, a lot of fear. It's like everyone, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? like yeah. I, I'm gonna do this anyway, you know. Yeah, and in actual an actual, the... actual factor went really well. You know, that's awesome. I'm yeah. really, really happy with it. And um, great. You know, it's just like I don't know I just I feel that there's a. You know there was some tough times for people but i think it's also a lot of collective consciousness going on in it everyone was feeling mm. a bit doom and gloom but mm. i know i feel now that since like daylight savings has kicked in and all that sort of stuff there's a new um i know everyone's a bit more higher vibration and getting out there and having fun yeah um, i
1: do. i do know what you mean i don't mm. I feel that as well that the shift in weather is often pretty palpable in melbourne too yeah <laughs> the effect it has on everyone
0: yeah it's great yeah. yeah so that so i'm announcing it now good. on the on the airwaves that, that time great. is over okay over. Good. you don't have to worry about that shit anymore <laughs> that's good that bodes well yeah <laughs> um so uh so do, do you keep uh regular work hours
1: uh yeah more or less i'm i'm in the studio usually by about 10 and i stay till sort of six so and i kind of go pretty much every day. I'm often there on weekends as well.
0: Hmm.
1: Not, not necessarily for as long on the weekend, or I might take one day off during the week and then swap it out for a weekend day. But I love the weekends at the studio cause no one's there. So it's so quiet. And I often lately I'm doing music stuff on the weekend where I can kind of feel uninhibited to make heaps of noise and get weird and experimental with synths and stuff. And no one's, um no one's yeah. going to be put out by that. So, yeah, weekends are good.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's that mixture of being, having the community, but then having your own own time and space as well. Yeah, that's
1: the thing. Sometimes yeah. I get my best work done when no one's around to to chat to.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you have a dream project you'd love to work on?
1: Um, yeah, I would. At some point in my life, would love to get the gig composing music for film. I think that would be really fun and interesting uh experience or even just to be involved in in sound design for film mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: So that's cool i saw you um you've recently released a record as well
1: yeah that was uh the sort of exhibition soundtrack for the last show in melbourne so i sort of pressed a limited just a short run of 100 copies of the vinyl and that was fun that was a um you know a lockdown project that i wrote and then all the strings were sort of done in midi and I had that played by real string quartet um, when I was up in Sydney and recorded it at 3.01. And that was, yeah, it was an amazing experience getting to collab with an actual real live string quartet instead mm. of just samples.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, that's uh, like, it's it's through having things like that, to, like that you've been working on is how you end up with those like film score projects in the future you know yeah i hope so yeah
1: because yeah. we'll otherwise
0: they're just they're just employing a painter to be a to do a film score, which isn't going to happen you know
1: yeah that's true
0: yeah so yep. uh, i always say that, yeah exactly that they will come <laughs> exactly exactly um so where are you wanting to take your uh your art career
1: um i guess i'm i'm hoping to show more in institutions and to make um, like sound installations and interactive sort of technology-based installations that involve color and sound and that groups of people can interact with. We came to run like more sound workshops or community programs that connect with communities. I, I feel like I missed that from street art a little bit, that community engagement of getting out there and chatting to everyone and painting something that lots of people get to interact with. I think that was a big part of the draw card for me, maybe more than the art sometimes. And Yeah, I don't have that anymore. So, yeah, I, I got so much satisfaction out of the recent sound installation I've, I've put on in Vanilla, the Voices from the Void show, which was a series of brass drums that resonate when you approach them, and each one's tuned to a different frequency. So the whole room became an instrument that people could just play by moving through the space. There's no skill required. You just, you know, kids loved it. It was really fun just to see the community playing with it and dancing and singing. And it kind of brings out this um, joyful inner child thing for, for older people, which I think we all need more of that. So that's like satisfaction levels are high with that kind of work. And if I compare it to all the kind of commercial shows that I've done, it's sort of, it's just not the same thing. So yeah, ultimately I, I would hope to push my career more into uh, institutions and larger scale immersive works.
0: Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it.
1: Yeah, we'll
0: see. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have any uh, future plans or projects in the pipeline?
1: Uh, yeah, well, my next show is in Sydney uh, on the 22nd of November, which is called iMusic. And that was a term yeah. that they used initially in the 15th century for the graphic score when it sort of first came in. And that was this idea of like an abstract form of notation, like a visual score that could be interpreted however the musicians choose. So I like that idea and it was a reference point for this series. So that show will be on at St. Cloche Gallery and there's a sound element to that show, which is sort of a, it'll be an interactive thing on the opening night and then I'll be doing a sort of sound performance over the weekend and an artist talk using a an instrument I designed called the particle plate. Um, the particle plate is basically a, steel plate that you drop things on and each time something hits it that sound vibration is converted into MIDI notes and they're randomized but put through a scale set so there's no wrong notes but you can't choose which one will be triggered when so it's sort of a random sequencer that you get to play with um, with gravity and with dropping objects on it so quite fun and I'm just going to set up like a ping pong ball or gallery and let people discover it and then there'll be big speakers, kind of blasting these sounds around the gallery. So that'll be fun. And yeah, apart from that, I have a residency in Portugal next year, and I've been shortlisted for the Lyon Biennale with the Voices from the Void installation. So I'll find out in February if that's if that work will be going over. And I'll obviously go over for that if it happens to install.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Sounds like you got Thanks. some really cool, cool stuff. Yeah, um, a few cool things. Yeah. yeah. So he told you. Mate, it's all happening again. It's all happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um so where's the best place for people to see your work online?
1: Um, my website is just Danielotool.com.au.
0: And my Instagram is Daniel dot o sure. yeah. All right. Well, Daniel, it's been great to chat with you and find out a lot more about your artwork. It's, um, this has been a really good conversation. It's, uh, yeah, mate. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I don't, I've never, never sat down with you like this and had a really good chat. No, so, no, we haven't. Yeah. I've known you yeah. for a long
1: time, you know, through the traps. But, yeah, that's great.